Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down Europe's largest airline, Ryanair. As we do more breakdowns, we start to look for patterns of successful business models that succeed across different industries. And Ryanair is another case study in low-cost, shared economies of scale. To break down Ryanair, I'm joined by Holland Advisors founder and portfolio manager, Andrew Hollingworth. Andrew was an airlines analyst for a decade and has written extensively on Ryanair. He's a studier of business models and also joined me for our episode this past summer on Charles Schwab. On this episode, we talk about what makes airlines such a difficult industry for investors, how CEO Michael O'Leary has taken a truly unique approach to building this business, and how to frame cyclical versus secular dynamics in the airlines market. Now, one quick note before we transition to the episode, you'll hear Andrew and I talk about O'Leary's unique PR approach with shareholders, the union, and pretty much anyone that he deals with. And if you're interested in that type of dark arts of communication and media, make sure to check out our newest show at Colossus Making Media. It operates as an ongoing business breakdown of our own business, Colossus, and we spend a lot of time studying the world of communications and media more broadly. You'll find a link to that show in our show notes. Make sure to subscribe. Now, on to the episode. All right, Andrew, welcome back to Business Breakdowns. We're going to break down Ryanair today, which I'm excited about. I think the best place to start is right from the top with airlines. Help me understand why airlines have such a bad reputation with investors. Bad reputation? Well, I think this is a fairly well-trodden path. Different people have listened to Buffett say pretty desperate things about the airlines. I mean, the one or two that come to mind is he called them a death trap for investors. I think he once talked about having no 800 number that he'd dial every time that he thought about buying a share in an airline and they talked him down and told him not to do it. And then when you look at the stats, the sector has got really poor long-term return on capital. And there are very few companies within the global sector, if you like, that have ever established what you and I would call a sustainable competitive advantage. So there isn't a logical reason as to why you should look at this sector at all. The one caveat I would say is that Buffett, with all of his caution stroke negativity towards the airlines over the years, then bought 10% of the entire US sector in about 2017, only then to sell it all during the COVID downturn. So make of that what you will. 
I think that sets the table nicely for a lot of things that we can end up discussing here. And it's a good opportunity to shift towards Ryanair specifically. Maybe you can give us an introduction to Ryanair, the airline, how big they are today, a sense of scale, where they operate, and a little bit about the business itself. Simplistically put, Ryanair is the biggest airline in Europe. It's got, I think it's about 16% today market share of what's called intra-EU routes, so routes that don't leave the European Union. To put it into context, that market share would have been 4% in 2004, 8% in 2008, and about 12% in 2016. And in terms of absolute numbers, this year, roughly Ryanair will do about 168, 170 million passengers. They did 140 in 2019. They did 81 in 2014, and they did 58 in 2009. And the reason those sort of numbers are worth thinking about, we've trebled, almost quadrupled the number of passengers since 2009, is because this is happening against a European economy that's been pretty stagnant for quite a long time. So there's been no tailwind driving this business, but it's grown in absolute terms, and it's grown in relative terms in terms of the market share against the sector in which it's operating You made some references earlier to the challenges that the industry has faced. Is there anything specific about Ryanair's business model that differentiates it and allowed it to gain that market share over time? I believe so, yes. I'm a huge business model fan. I'm a huge Charlie Munger fan. And what I sort of do with the companies I invest in or advise or whatever else is I'm looking for what I call what else looks like this. So if I've seen a successful model used somewhere else in the world, And then I see that model turn up on my doorstep or turn up in a different sector that I'm really interested. And ultimately, Ryanair is basically a scale economy shared model. Costco and Amazon are well understood in terms of their scale economy models, if you like. But what I see is that occasionally in different sectors around the world, and often not necessarily particularly attractive sectors, going back to your question earlier on about how bad this industry is, is that occasionally a powerful business model pops up in a pretty unpopular sector. And I think that's what Ryanair is. This is the same as every other scale economy EDLP business. Keep your costs really low, take a long-term view in terms of value creation, and so on. Yeah, it's an airline, but it's no different in terms of that business model that's rolling out in that scale economy, well-proven way. And when I hear that in terms of being very focused on cost structure, one of the names that immediately jumps out to me in the US as an analog is Southwest Airlines. Is that a fair comparison? How much overlap would you say in terms of the two business models exists? There is a lot of overlap. For me, Ryanair history is totally interlinked with the history of Southwest. I'll give you a few dates here. So just throw a few out. Ryanair was founded in 1986, floated on the stock market in 1997. Another date is 2013. 2013 is where Michael O'Leary, who's famous for being abusive to his customers and terrible customer service and all the rest of it. 2013 is when he starts talking about being nice to customers. But for all of those different dates, 1992 for me is the most important date in the history of Ryanair. And the reason that is the case is that that is the day in 1992 that Michael O'Leary went to meet Herb Keller. And if you look up online, there's a really interesting article that was written in the FT a couple of years later about him meeting Herb Keller. And basically, the, the guy that ran right now at the time sent his protege, Michael O'Leary, to go and meet Herb Keller. But this is what O'Leary said to the FT. He said, I went to meet Herb Keller. I passed out about midnight. And when I woke up again at about 3 a.m., 
Keller was still there, pouring himself another bourbon and smoking. I thought I'd picked his brains and come away with the Holy Grail, but the next day I couldn't remember a thing. And it's just perfect because he did pick Keller's brains and he did come away with the Holy Grail. He learned you run a single type of aircraft. You run high utilization. You run no frills. You're absolutely obsessed about cost reduction. And the last thing that Herb Keller taught him was that you do sort of provocative advertising. And that didn't live in the States throughout the Southwest growth period. But my understanding is they were quite provocative with their advertising. And that is clearly something that O'Leary picked up. And if you read the history of the company, it's very clear that when he came back, what Ryanair was and stood for and was going to stand for for the next 20 or 30 years had been defined by that meeting with Herb Keller. O'Leary, I had the fortunate opportunity to spend about an hour with him, and he lived up to all of the expectations. This was about a decade ago, but the advertisements and just the positioning of Ryanair and the way that they communicate in terms of throwing ideas out there, like paying to use the restroom, overweight people perhaps having to spend more on their seats, and many other things in between. He certainly doesn't hold back, but it begs the question, if you have this type of mentality, which is so brash and can rub customers the wrong way, what keeps customers coming back to Ryanair? I don't know if you're familiar with the book Seven Powers, which is a Hamilton Heller book. Sure. There's a really interesting bit in that where they talk about counter positioning and being the challenger and being the upstart and all the rest of it. And what O'Leary did and to an extent still does at the beginning was certainly that. He counter positioned the company. He could have taken out lots of very complicated adverts that says, well, this is British Airways costs and this is my costs and this is why I charge you less and all the rest of it. He didn't do that. He just did everything you would do if you were a brutally low cost business. And that includes saying, I don't want you on my plane. You're too fat or you have to pay to use the toilets or whatever obscene things he did at that time. But intuitively, it was a way of telling the customer on the front page of the newspaper where everyone said, isn't he outrageous? It was an intuitive way of telling the customer, I am really, really low cost. Everyone gets upset about it or has got upset about it in the past, but it worked brilliantly. They didn't need to take adverts out to prove how low cost they were because everybody knew. There's an element of PR, which we don't even hit on in most of our episodes. But I think doing some research behind the scenes for this episode, it's clear that so much of this was essentially a big marketing campaign. And some people say all news is good news for a brand, and they've taken that to the next level. What other key insights have you gained from O'Leary? Because I think he is really, as much as you talk about Ryanair, you talk about Michael O'Leary. Obviously, he wasn't the founder. Last name was Ryan for the founder. So what else stands out about Michael O'Leary and is so key to the story? I mean, you're absolutely right. I'm as much a fan of Michael O'Leary as I am of Ryanair. But when you get into that scale economy share, when you get into very, very low cost, when you get into having to take a very long-term view on value creation, almost all the companies I've ever come across that are good at that generally have an owner-manager involved. And the reason they do is you need somebody who just keeps saying no when it comes to putting up prices or keeps saying no when it comes to putting cost increases through or whatever else it may be. And so to me, I think the business model and the characters that go with it become sort of inextricably linked. And I've got that in Weatherspoons in the UK. I've got that in Schwab, if you like, as it was for many years. So I think first things first, linking the personality or the fanaticism of the leader, if you want to call it that, and the business model, the two can't be separated. In terms of O'Leary as an individual, the adjectives I'd use to describe O'Leary would be abrasive, brash, foul-mouthed, 
and utterly brilliant. There's a book, which is not an autobiography, but it's been written about him by a chap called Matt Cooper. It's called Michael O'Leary, A Turbulent Time for the Man That Made Ryanair. And it's a really good book. And the reason why it's a good book is because if you have listened to O'Leary's public persona or you've heard him say things rude about some of his customers or whatever else, you may have a perception for the sort of person that he is. And actually, if you meet him as an investor, you might end up with a bit of that perception because he's incredibly direct and incredibly rude, even to shareholders sometimes. But actually, if you read the book, you get a much more interesting insight to him. So there's a relatively quiet, studious child who ended up as this PR sort of fool, if you want to call it that. And so I think what you alluded to earlier on, this was a persona that he adopted in order to promote this company. And it's worked brilliantly. So I think there's two bits of it. There's the sort of persona that he adopted to make this company well known. And then there's the businessman. And the businessman, I'll be honest with you, I think he's utterly brilliant. There's not that many people, I'm very lucky enough to meet a good chunk of owner-managers, that really get the micro, i.e. they get unit costs and relative unit costs, and they get the day-to-day small problems that are happening in their company. But they also get the macro and the second-order consequences of what happens when people come into the industry and leave the industry and the capital cycle of when you expand and when you contract and all the rest of it. And he's very good at both ends of that. And I think that is a very large proportion of why Ryanair has been such a success. It's quite easy to have these people that are the customer's friend or look after their staff or whatever else. O'Leary loves making money and he loves killing competitors. And I think those two things as an investor are nice to know because he's not just out there running an airline to make it really cheap for the passenger and nice for the staff. He really wants to make a lot of money for himself and other shareholders. And he wants to make sure every other competitor dies as quickly as possible. There's this common tactic for many CEOs or founders to respond to any investor question by first starting off and saying, that's a great question. And in my short period of time with O'Leary, he did not say that once. And he often said, that's a dumb question or made sure you knew it was an absolutely ridiculous question, which really stood out. I have to say it was quite unique to see that type of approach and how different it was from others. I think you were tapping into something interesting there with the macro. It's a famously cyclical industry where you do have supply coming in, supply coming off. We just had a recent event with COVID where there were major shifts in this industry. How has he evolved the business model against cycles or if there are secular changes happening? How has Ryanair approached those type of opportunities or have they kept the business model fairly straightforward the entire time? Yeah, if you've had meetings with Michael O'Leary and he's been kind enough to tell you that you've asked a stupid question, then I think you've done really well because normally such observations would be preambled with huge amounts of obscenities. I think he holds himself, he holds his staff, and he holds investors to a high level. He wants to focus on what matters right here, right now. He doesn't want to waste any time. And I admire him for that, frankly. And when I go to meetings with Michael O'Leary, I try to make sure I'm pretty damn well prepared. To ask your questions about supply, competition, COVID, and all the rest of it, I mean, the answer is it's easier to set up an airline if you want to go and look at what Richard Branson did with Virgin. He rented a couple of jumbo jets, painted them red, hired some staff, and off he went. And I think that is sort of always possible to do. But generally, it's only possible to do if there is somebody you are undercutting who's got a cost or a profit umbrella. And so Virgin famously undercut British Airways on the North Atlantic. And he made a business out of that, he made a brand out of that. 
And I think that's where the whole industry is in the sense that you can't get a sustainable competitive advantage because someone else will rent a plane and then sell the seats on that plane under another brand to somebody else. But that changes a lot if you are the lowest cost producer. That is where Ryanair is obviously, to my mind, a very different airline, as is Southwest, a very different airline to your average global airline, is that if you are the lowest cost producer and you are obsessive about unit costs and about giving the customers a benefit of those unit costs, it then becomes impossible for a Richard Branson to go and rent some planes and set up because his unit economics are going to be better than yours, like Virgin was versus British Airways. They're going to be significantly worse. And so either they won't get the airline off the ground or the backers won't back it or whatever else. So I think there is different rules about setting up competitors and supply depending on who you're competing with. I met with Michael O'Leary last summer and we were chatting about this whole supply situation and what happened during COVID and all the rest of it. We were talking about you know, barriers to entry. And he said the biggest barrier to entry in this European sector is Ryanair, i.e. why would you set up an airline when we're selling seats for 10 euros each or 20 euros each? You'd be a fool to do so. And I know that's him blowing his own trumpet, but I think he's right. And that's very different, Virgin setting up to compete with BA when British Airways business class ticket might have been two and a half thousand pounds 20 years ago. On the supply thing, I think there's something that happened in the last four or five years that I think is quite different, however, is that if you have set up and you have got to a decent scale, so you're Norwegian or you're a state-owned carrier like Alitalia and you've survived by bailouts and all the rest of it, then it takes a while for that company to go bust or retrench, if you like, because you are established and it's easier to sort of keep you going and bolster you up than it is to sort of expect you to fail. And that setup pre-COVID is really important because Ryanair basically was trying to put TAP Portugal, Alitalia, Norwegian, and a few others out of business pre-COVID-19. And they were trying to do so by really depressing their fare level. And as a consequence of which, those companies were reporting losses, they were cheating market share, but they weren't ultimately going under. And what was really fascinating about what happened in COVID-19 is COVID-19's downturn in the airline sector basically did Michael O'Leary's job for him because it put all those companies into bankruptcy. So what would have taken five, six, seven years took a year and a half. So if you go back and read what O'Leary talked about and the management team talked about in that time, they said, look, we've been in this business a long time, but we've never seen so many opportunities to be seats dead. And that wasn't just them puffing their chest out. It was them going, well, Italy's now up for grabs. Portugal's now up for grabs. And suddenly you see massive market share changes in those sectors that otherwise would have taken three, four, five, seven years to take place. So there are differences between what happens in maybe supply of new or the setup of new airlines in a theoretical basis and then what happened during the COVID-19 period. You tapped into something really important there, which is lowest price is different from lowest cost. Lowest price, anyone can offer the lowest price. That won't keep you in business. It might give you market share for a period of time. It won't keep you in business. Operating with the lowest cost is very different than lowest price. What goes into that? What are they doing? I think you alluded to before operating a single type of aircraft. But what else goes into that cost structure that differentiates it from every other airline? The first thing that goes into it is a sort of culture. And it's a culture that is obsessed about low cost. And it's really important to sort of keep that culture, if you like. And I think O'Leary being in there a long time helps keep that culture. Whereas in other airlines, you have chief executives that come and go and may have 
different attitude towards it. So first thing I think is really important is the culture. They are obsessed about costs in all different parts. So when there's a chart on the presentation pack that is in every presentation that Ryanair ever do, and it compares their cost structure with the industry's cost structure, simplistically, on a unit cost basis, Ryanair is 31 euros of unit cost per passenger, X fuel, and EasyJet's 53, and Lufthansa's 100 euros. So 31 euros, 53 euros, and 100 euros. How they go about that is they do different things differently. So for example, when it comes to owning the aircraft, they are notoriously greedy when others are fearful. So if you look at what Ryanair have done in 2009, in 2000 and 2020, they made massive orders off of the Boeing order book when Boeing was desperate for business. And then those big orders at low prices feed through into lower ownership and maintenance costs five, six, seven years hence, because you bought an aircraft for cheaper than everybody else. On things like fuel, there's not much you can do. Everyone pays about the same fuel, but you can have more fuel-efficient aircraft. So the MAX aircraft that's recently been released is known for having, I think it's something like 4% more seats and burning 16% less fuel. So if you're able to fund purchasing of those aircraft, well, then you get a cost advantage from having unit costs of more seats and less fuel consumption. And the other thing that they have done is that they are very canny in terms of what they do on airport slots and where they fly to and what deals they do. So in Europe, you know, famous airports like Heathrow are phenomenally expensive to fly in and out of. Ryanair just doesn't fly from there. 15, 20 years ago, Stansted, which is an airport north of London, had a lot of capacity. And Ryanair has done a variety of deals with Stansted to basically say, look, we'll give you huge volumes, but we want you to give us fantastic prices. Those type of hub airports for Ryanair hub rather than a big hub, they then locked in a lot of growth for a very cheap unit cost. And then where they fly to, they're agnostic about it. They will happily change their route network, but just make sure that they can offer very, very low prices because of the fact that either the hub type Stansted have given them a great volume deal per passenger or the place that they're flying to is also giving them a great deal. You look up Heathrow Paris, you're not going to see a Ryanair flight. If you look up Stansted outskirts of Paris, you will see a Ryanair flight. It's the cost obsession that determines where they fly rather than having to fly from a particular airport. And that's what distinguishes them from not just the Lufthansa's and the Air France's and the British Airways's, but also from the EasyJet. EasyJet flies from two main airports, probably are Gatwick and Geneva which are relatively expensive airports. The cost of the slots and hubs and the slots at airports is one of the more interesting dynamics that I got to learn about in recent years. And it makes you think when you land and you're taxiing for extra time or you're off in the flight that's delayed or pushed back or not taking off your 15th in line, what goes into that and the different costs associated with that? Another big cost and another big issue that the U.S. airlines faced was union workforces. Notoriously difficult to deal with relative to traditional workforces. How has Ryanair approached labor with the obvious challenge of dealing with unions? Ryanair's, I think, I don't want to say checkered is their history here, but I think they certainly have always been historically a little bit at odds with some of their workforce. And I think that's because they are so obsessed about low cost. So for a long time, they failed to recognize the unions whatsoever. And there's quite a lot of companies in the world that do that and do get away with it. 
the airline industry is a notoriously unionized industry. So in the end, Ryanair has recognized unions, but it has made sure it's recognized them on a country by country basis. And it has then tried to negotiate pay deals with those unions, if you like. They would see it as fair basis. Unions would see it as a tough basis. I suppose what's sort of interesting now, and I think the COVID period was quite interesting for this, is that the danger is, is that if we sort of discuss the unionization with they didn't appreciate unions and now they do, it's almost like they've become bureaucratic or the unions have won. And that doesn't really tell the story. So so they have, as you'd expect with a low-cost operator, had tension with unions in the past. But what's been quite interesting over the COVID period is that a lot of other airlines, they either took huge bailouts or they made massive redundancies in their staff. And then they had to take their staff back on again. So it didn't matter if you unionized or not. If the business was going bust, you got made redundant. And what Ryanair did in a lot of cases is it kept quite a lot of people current and a lot of its pilots current and cabin crew current. They were flying not all the time, but some of the time. But it took them down to sort of 80% of pay. And what it's done in the last 12 months is basically taken everybody on a sort of route back up to 100% of pay again. Quite interesting that having been an anti-union, an anti-workforce type company, you could look at it that way, because of the benefits of very low unit costs, a strong balance sheet, an own fleet, and all the rest of it gave them, they were able to actually be much more flexible and much more helpful to their staff. And so the last year, staff have ended up going back to 100% of pay or they're on a route to get back to 100% of pay. But what's also interesting is that will probably happen, i.e. that full pay reversion will happen at a point when EasyJet's flying more customers. So on a unit basis, they have done the right thing by their staff, but they've also ended up flying more passengers, which is all part and parcel of business that is itching and scratching when it's small, but grows up a little bit when it gets bigger. O'Leary's never going to be taking the leaders out for dinner and being cuddly and friendly with them. But I think it is a more mature relationship than it once was. And summer 21 in Europe is very interesting. There was one airline that didn't cancel flights. There was one airline that didn't cancel package holidays and that flew on time. And it wasn't British Airways and it wasn't Lufthansa and it wasn't EasyJet and it wasn't KLM. It was Ryanair. And that's because they had the staff. The staff had been trained. They'd done enough practical flying time. And their slots at the airports they had weren't congested, whereas places like Heathrow and others had lots and lots of cancellations. So it's quite an interesting change of dynamic that's going on in the industry. Unions are such a fascinating dynamic for various businesses. And in some ways, it's always going to look like a challenging relationship because they have to negotiate every so often. And you don't negotiate by sounding happy in public. You want to sound upset. So I think you often see workforces present that way. And it's something that could be worthy of its own case study to see which companies have the best relationships with their unions. And times have certainly changed, but it's particularly interesting to hear how things have come full circle with Ryanair. Just on that point, when you do have another meeting with O'Leary, or if one of your listeners hears O'Leary speak at a conference, be under no illusions. Michael O'Leary doesn't speak to investors. Michael O'Leary speaks to all stakeholders at the same time. And so there are periods of time when you might find Michael O'Leary is not quite as upbeat as you thought he was going to be. Maybe there's a union negotiation coming up. This is a man that is fully aware of there are many people who are stakeholders of this business that he has to negotiate with at different points in time, be it Boeing, be it suppliers, be it union leaders, be it shareholders. And so you just need to bear that in mind. Going back to the cost structure point, it's 
quite a massive difference in terms of cost per passenger relative to some of their competitors. What does that translate to in terms of margins? How much pricing are they trying to push? Do margins look very similar to the rest of the industry? And how cyclical are those margins? Are margins similar to the rest of the industry? No. Are margins volatile? Yes, because fuel goes up and down and you have recessions and you have Icelandic ash clouds and all the stuff that goes with running an airline. But to give you a little bit of context, I mean, and bear in mind Ryanair often has a debt-free balance sheet and doesn't pay much tax because it's based in Ireland. A net margin and an EBIT margin are not a million miles away from each other. So that's something worth people bearing in mind. Net income margin of Ryanair between, let's say, 2003 and 2007, i.e. before the economic crash, was 17 18% or so. Then we were probably at about a 10% net margin from 2009 through 2014. And then 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, we were at about a 20% net margin. And then obviously we lost money during COVID. And also at that moment, if you look back to that 16, 17, 18 period, which was before COVID-19, we're at a return on equity of about 30%. So this is not your typical airline in that regard. In terms of where everyone else is in the industry, the answer is that is much more volatile and much lower is the short answer. You made some reference in there about pricing and how they use pricing to make margin or something. Was that right? Yeah, just being the other side of the equation in terms of determining margin and how they think about pricing, how much cheaper they want to be and whether they take advantage as supply comes off the market. I'll just give you a snapshot here. So in 2018, Ryanair made a 23% EBIT margin. The net margin will be similar. Made a net income per passenger of 11 euros. And it made the same net income per passenger for the last two years. So by all accounts, that is a really nicely profitable year for the company. And the 11 euros per passenger was pretty much one of its all-time highs, albeit that it had been at that level for a few years. But what that doesn't tell you about 2018 is that the average fare they were charging was 39 euros one way. And I know, because I'm looking at the company, look at the competitors around that time, is the competitors were squealing at that moment in time. So Ryanair was making good money. It was growing its passenger base. It was keeping its unit cost low. But at the same time, it was, in my opinion, aggressively discounting, not just to grow its own traffic, but to inflict pain on its competitors. And that, to me, is very interesting because that gets you to start to think about what the future might look like. Have they shown a willingness to shift now that you've seen a lot of the industry come offline? Have they pushed on pricing? Yes. And yes is the answer. What I think is very interesting. So if you look at the trading statement that they announced in January, they suddenly said, we're going to make 20% more this year than everyone, all the analysts thought they were. Why is that? It's because of yield. It's because of pricing. And I think this is the really interesting bit about the future of this company is that I think there is an assumption, and you can model it any way you like. You can model it in margins. You can model it in fares. You can model it in net profit per passenger. But whichever way you model it, most people, I think, are sort of going, oh, well, maybe we'll go back to the profits we were making before COVID. And then if we get back to that level, and then actually they've all done quite well. I don't think that's the right benchmark. And the reason I don't think that's the right benchmark is because around that time, Michael O'Leary and team are making it incredibly clear that they were trying to kill and I mean kill, Alitalia, TAP Portugal, Norwegian, and everybody else. 
And around that time, they made it very clear that were they to ever kill those competitors, then the pricing environment for the future would be either a bit better or a lot better than it was at that moment in time. And to go full circle back to the Herb Keller discussion, between 2013 and 18, at various points in time, O'Leary often referred to the US market and spoke about the consolidated nature of the market and that being the sort of root of Ryanair's future as to what the market would look like when you reached a more consolidated position, i.e. probably a less fast rate of passenger growth, but a much better yield environment. That didn't materialize for a few years for a variety of reasons, one of which being COVID-19. But now he's very clearly with that mindset, i.e., COVID-19 has done for me what I was in the process of doing myself. I came my competitors off. I've gone from whatever it was, I don't know, 7% market share in Italy to 32% market share in Italy in three, four years. I don't need to win another 32% market share. So they have what they call a no-factor active yield passive, i.e. they want to fill the plane and they don't mind what price they fill the plane at. That is a powerful way to put pressure on your competitors by basically saying, well, we'll just keep discounting until we fill the plane. But it equally goes the other way if your competitors aren't there, i.e. you will fill the plane at whatever the going rate is. And I think that's, for my mind, why people underestimate the potential yield upside and therefore profit upside of the company in the three, four, five years hence from now. Is there interesting data on utilization of airplanes? You mentioned filling the plane. It's just such an interesting equation to me because... It is fixed cost. So you have this insane operating leverage. In this case, if they just keep the same amount of passengers coming through and raise prices by a dollar, essentially that dollar flows all the way through to the bottom line and to cash flow. I'm just curious how they think about dynamic pricing once you hit a certain point in terms of passengers on a plane, just discounting in the final days leading up because you know those additional dollars are going to drive profitability. And are they doing this? differently than some of their competitors. It sounded like what you were saying at the end of that answer was that they are, but it's just a really interesting thing when it comes to airlines that I'm always curious about. Yeah. So for my sins, I was an airlines analyst for quite a long time and there's always been this hold off. And if you think about how an airline used to be 15 years or so ago, you might've got on the aircraft and the aircraft wasn't that full, but they were tough on the pricing. And the reason for that is they were refusing to sell that last capacity at a low price. And that was how your Deltas and your British Airways is whatever else operated for quite a long time. The low cost model is different to that. So the low cost model is you're trying to fill the plane every time it takes off. Discounting just before it takes off, you're not likely to do. It's the opposite. If somebody goes on the EasyJet website and wants to fly Gatwick to Geneva on Friday, they're going to pay a high price, not a low price. Because EasyJet know they're desperate for the flight. But what you want to be doing is selling a lot of that capacity as early on as you can and then filling up your plane so that you know you've sold your capacity. And that's why at an industry level, if there is too much capacity in the industry as a whole, and if there is too much capacity at the same price, nobody makes any money or any sustainable money because the customer isn't that loyal. The only way you stand out at all is if you have got plenty of capacity or plenty of capacity at the point of booking, say, you know, for two months hence, but you are very cheap. And then you just attract more and more and more and more volume. And that drives your unit costs lower and that drives your prices lower and that brings in more volume. And that's that scale economy shared model, which is exactly what they're doing. But unless you're in that model, I don't think you've got a sustainable business model, frankly. 
So going off on a tangent a little bit, I've spent a lot of time recovering EasyJet. I'm nothing like as interested in EasyJet as I used to be some years ago. And that's because EasyJet stopped growing. So it stopped growing at a volume level, and therefore its unit costs become disadvantages versus Ryanair rather than advantages. And I just think you have got to be a business that is growing in volume, therefore seeing lower unit costs and being cost and unit cost and low fare obsessed. And if you're not, then someone like Ryanair or Wiz or someone else is going to be out to get you. Not to dive into the tangent further, but I do think it's helpful to have a parallel story to look at relative to Ryanair. Has that growth stopped because they have stopped expanding into new regions? Have they hit an upper limit in terms of utilization and what they have on their planes? Is there anything else that's just driving the lack of growth there? At EasyJet? Yes. COVID-19 was just a remarkable existential threat to most of these airlines. Unless you had the very lowest costs and the very best balance sheet, you had to go into survival mode. And survival mode is often running the routes that are the most profitable to you and sort of defending your core. And that's exactly what EasyJet did. So EasyJet went from being a growing lower and lower unit cost business, albeit not a patch on Ryanair, being forced effectively by a variety of incidents, disagreements with the founder, but also COVID-19 itself, it being forced into basically cutting less profitable routes and shrinking to its core. And therefore, you become, it's a better business than a lot of other airlines, but you become analogous to the melting iceberg, which is different to obviously a business that's got growing scale the whole time. In terms of cyclical exposure, I'd assume you see shifts in overall passenger growth, sometimes passenger declines that is tied to recessionary periods. How do low-cost providers hold up in that? I assume there is some shift where you go from taking a traditional airline and rather than cutting out travel completely, you start to travel on a low-cost airline. Is that actually true in the data? Does that thesis get supported by history with Ryanair? Earlier on, I gave you some passenger numbers, which was 58 million passengers in 2009 and 81 million passengers in 2014. The answer is, Intuitively, that is definitely right. But I think also it's there are sort of cyclical boosts that maybe can come where people are economizing and wanting to save money. So they'll fly Ryanair rather than Lufthansa or whatever else. But that's overlaying a secular shift anyway, in the sense that everyone's moving in that direction. There aren't that many people left wanting to pay higher prices purely for the sake of it, if you like. And so you just have periods of faster transition from high cost airlines and maybe marginally slower periods of transition. But it's just, as we see in other sectors, in recessionary periods are periods people want to save money and generally might trade down a bit. So it certainly doesn't do businesses any harm. And the history would certainly prove that. Going back to the point on margins and I think the net income margin, quite impressive relative to the peer group. How much of that is actually translating to free cash flow? Is there anything unique that's happening, whether it's from a working capital perspective or CapEx? Obviously, you have planes here. I'm not sure how they go about financing those planes, whether they own them, lease them, how correlated that CapEx is to depreciation expense. So maybe you can go and tap into a little bit more on the free cash flow side of the equation, and then we can talk about shareholder returns as well. So Ryanair is a business that loves to own the aircraft. And one of the things that helped it during COVID-19 was exactly that. that, I don't know what the percentages are, but it's freehold ownership of aircraft going into COVID-19 was very high. 
Now, you still got the depreciation of those aircraft, but ultimately you haven't got a bond holder or a leaseholder breathing down your neck to make payments. And at the same time, it's also been a company that's generally not had that much debt or any debt on its balance sheet. So it has used a lot of its cash flow to buy aircraft and then done the same again and done the same again and done the same again. So we've constantly employed more and more retained earnings into buying more and more freehold aircraft and built the business that way. Other people have built businesses in a leasehold way, which generates more cash, but ultimately then they have much more difficult periods when cyclical downturns come. So Ryanair, to be fair to them, has been built in a very sustainable, with an eye on downturns sort of way. We've got a business here that on average might have made a return on equity of about 20% and might have grown its passenger base by 15% or something and its profits by 15%. So as a consequence of which, you would expect nearly all of its earnings to be retained in the business in order to effectively fund that growth because you're funding growth in passengers and therefore growth in seats and therefore growth in PP&E of 15% from a 20% ROE, let's say, if I'm making generic statements about its past. So you would have thought you've only got 20% or 25% of earnings that could be paid out to shareholders. What's quite interesting is when you go back over a long period, Ryanair has paid about 75, 70% of net income out to shareholders, whilst at the same time, still growing at 15% per annum. In mathematical or accounting terms, that's impossible. The way that that squares is negative working capital. So this is a business that's very aggressively negative working capital. They get paid for the seats up front. They are then paying for fuel and everything else and airport slots behind. And it's that negative working capital that helps fund the business. And so that's why the business has been able to grow, deploy capital to grow, and at the same time, still pay out what have been, in some cases, 60, 70, 75% often what were share buybacks in the pre-COVID-19 years. So we're not at that point yet. They did incur some debt during COVID-19 and their priority is to pay that off in the next 12 months or so. But I think one of the things that would be quite surprising, I think, for investors, or I think will happen, is that we could get back to that profitable phase two or three years from now, where the business is growing, it's deploying capital to grow, fares and yields are higher. But at the same time, they might be paying out a lot more in either share buyback or dividend than people might today suspect. Yeah, it's an impressive nuance to the story as well. I think we've outlined a lot in terms of the bull case and what makes this such a strong business. What do you see as the risks to the business as a shareholder? Bizarrely, in a business like this, I'm not too worried about competitive risks, actually. And maybe that's wrong. But I've seen the poker hand, if you want to call it that, of EasyJet and Wiz weaken quite substantially in the last three or four years. And they were potentially the biggest threats to the company a few years ago. There are always risks in this industry. COVID-19... <laughs> There's a perfect example of that. Even before that, we had an Icelandic ash cloud that flew across Europe and stopped people flying for X number of weeks. Any sort of exogenous event can cause real problems to this industry and therefore everyone else in this industry. So if you are wanting a nice smooth ride of linear MasterCard Visa type sort of cash flows, you almost certainly won't get that in this company, in this industry. But all I look at it as is its relative position. So every one of these crises that come along, generally the person with the best balance sheet, the lowest unit cost comes out of the crisis stronger than they went in. And that was certainly the case in both 2008-9 and COVID-19 for Ryanair. But that doesn't mean you can't look at a share price that doesn't go down 30%, 40%, 50% when you thought it was going to go up significantly because an ex-industry event takes place. So that comes to the territory, I'm afraid. And on the competition point, how 
do these cycles typically work? Obviously, you have a lot of players that are just completely out of the market or went through restructurings. But historically, when you see these supply shocks, recessionary periods, capacity being taken offline, how long does that last before you have periods like you have at the moment where, at least from a U.S. perspective, travel is getting more and more expensive because capacity came offline and there's still a lot of demand for it? What does that response look like from an industry perspective? I think the U.S. is very interesting as a precedent here because you've obviously got the cyclical side of what's happened in terms of pricing is now responding to that as a cyclical recovery. But what's more important was the structural change. And at the very outset, we talked about Buffett buying into the industry and then selling out of the industry. Buffett's no fool. Why did he buy 10% of the whole industry in 2017? The reason he did is because the industry had consolidated and he could see that the industry was then having and is still enjoying a level of permanent pricing power. Now, that pricing power, it isn't permanent in the sense that it bucks recessions or bucks pandemics, but it is permanent in the sense if your market shares roughly stay the same and if participants of that market broadly behave themselves. And I think that's the conclusion that Buffett reached in 2017. And I think for me, that's the interesting bit that I'm at today is that we are getting to that point now in Europe whereby we might see the odd new challenger come in or not come in. But if we've got a situation where, I don't know, point-to-point routes in Europe, 50% are flown by low-cost carriers and half of that's flown by Ryanair or everybody else, that's a consolidated market. Yes, I mean, if they then gouge pricing to such a degree that it creates a sort of virgin-type BA challenge situation again, well, obviously, that's a foolish thing to do. But they can probably get away with charging just a little bit more and making a very nice living for themselves while still running a very tough unit cost business. And look at it from the other side. If you're a bondholder and you financed Norwegian Airlines, you've lost an absolute fortune. Do you really want to do that again? And I think there's a lot of people that have lost a lot of money funding large airline competitors. And I would have thought it'll be quite a long time before they fund those types of big scale airline rollouts with debt again. But we'll see. We close out these conversations with lessons. What do you think the main takeaways are from looking at Ryanair that you can apply elsewhere? I think finding a proven business model in what might be an unpalatable sector, I think is sometimes a really powerful thing. And that's mostly because these people have got the place to themselves. If you want to run an EDLP business and you want to run it in the food retail sector, well, you're going to have a tough time because everyone does exactly the same thing. Run an EDLP business in a London pub company like Weatherspoons or in a market competing with KLM and Lufthansa Air France, well, you might do a bit better than everyone thinks. And I think that's what I would say. I'd say to look out for proven business models in sectors you wouldn't expect. The other thing you could just say is that relationship between the founder and that business model is really crucial. Looking at a business turnaround or an airline that's got some bloke that's got a great CV that's just come in from Latin America that's run a couple of airlines before, I'm not really that interested. It needs to be someone that's absolutely part of the DNA and grew the business and it's got the culture inside of them. And that sort of relationship between the business model and the founder can be really powerful. And then, you know, what they say, find a genius and hold on tight. I love it. That's a perfect place to wrap up the conversation. Andrew, thank you again for coming and joining us on Business Breakdowns. Matt, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. 
That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 